1: growing herbs whether on the ledge or in the garden true leaf market makes it easy as abc to find and buy the seeds you're looking for that's anise basil and jervil of course use coupon code on the ledge to get 10 percent off your purchase at trueleafmarket.com now these indoor and outdoor growing experts will help you get your growing year off to a fruitful start. With an easy-to-use website featuring everything from LED grow lights to wheatgrass kits, plus a great range of flower and veg seeds. So visit TrueLeafMarket.com now and use the coupon code on the ledge to get 10% off their extensive product range. True Leaf Market, bringing the seeds you need. Buongiorno. It's Jane Perrone here for On the Ledge podcast. Feeling inexplicably Italian this morning for some reason. Perhaps it was that espresso I just had. I am your guide through the weird, wonderful, and bewitching world of houseplants. This is episode 98. If you've ever wondered why those Echeveria leaves root so readily to create new plants, and yet that fiddly fig leaf that you've been sticking in water for months at a time just doesn't seem to be growing, this is the episode for you. I'm speaking to Leslie Hallock, horticulturist extraordinaire, about the science of plant propagation this week, and I'm answering a question about a wilting calla lily. Shout-outs this week to Julie, Ailsa, Kevin, Marcy and Ida, who've all become legends – by pledging $5 a month or more to me on Patreon and to June, who has upped her pledge to become an On The Ledge superfan. So coming to her very shortly will be an exclusive postcard that nobody else has, only the people who are On The Ledge superfans. And also she has gained entrance to the On The Ledge advisory group, helping me to shape the future of the show. Find out more about how to donate on Patreon in my show notes at janeperone.com. From just a dollar a month, you can help to support the show. And a dollar a month is more than welcome, so please do check that out. If you have, I don't know, a, a third of the price of a cup of coffee available once a month to support the show, I would love to have you on my role of patrons. Well, it's been a very rainy week here in the UK, and if you've been following me on Instagram, where I'm at j.l.perone, you'll see that I had a bit of a monster Deliciosa Thai constellation crisis this week. I was eating my lunch and I suddenly noticed that popping up, squashing its way up between the pot And the cash pot were some incredible roots. And it turned out that one of my Thai constellations was desperately in need of repotting, which is why I think the current leaf that's unfurling is looking very miserable. So if you want to see me... uh... (laughs) Uh, making a bit of a mess of my Thai constellation, then do have a look at my Instagram stories this week. It's all set well that ends well. The plant will be fine, but it's just an illustration of the fact that these hungry aroids do need repotting regularly. Um, So yeah, check that out if you happen to be on Instagram. And if you're in the UK, check out the Garden Museum for details of their houseplant festival, which is coming up on Sunday the 29th of September and I'm going to be there helping people with their houseplants in the houseplant clinic. So that's going to be a really exciting day. It's on from 11 till 5 at the Garden Museum which is in Lambeth in London. I'll put the details in my show notes. I would love to meet you there. I will be bringing along a supply of stickers for anyone who comes up to me and says, I listen to your show, because that's a really wonderful thing to hear. So if you can make it to the Garden Museum, please do come along and let me know. And we'll have a little gathering in a corner for On The Ledge listeners. And remember, the previous weekend of September the 21st and 22nd is cactus world live the bcss event at luddingstone castle in kent and i'm organizing some kind of meetup for on the ledge listeners there so i need to have a planning session for that one but do block off that date in your diary if you can make it to see the wonderful wonderful gardens of tom hart dyke Uh, who's a legendary plant guy who I very much admire. So I'm looking forward to meeting him. So 21st and 22nd of September and the 29th of September dates for your diary if you happen to be based in the UK. Now let's talk plant propagation and the science that makes it work. Don't worry if you feel a bit intimidated by meristematic material and the adventitious roots, because we're going to cover all of the basics in this episode, which will help you to really refine your propagation techniques. Here's Leslie to introduce herself.
2: I'm Leslie Halleck and I am a professional horticulturist and lifelong gardener. I'm based in Texas. So I do a lot of indoor and outdoor gardening and I am a big plant propagation enthusiast. Everything I do, um has got some propagation infused into it all of my gardening projects so that was the impetus for my upcoming book plant parenting was that i wanted to share some of those basic propagation 101s with all of the new interested plant keepers out there and more experienced gardeners that you know really maybe haven't tried certain methods before
1: because plant propagation really is a a, a mass of different techniques that we can use to create more plants Some easy, some less than easy, depends on your plant. There's so much to learn. And that's what I love about this this particular topic, Leslie. I'm learning all the time and I've been doing, well, I don't know when I took my first cutting, but I was probably under 10. So there's something, always something new to learn on this topic. And I wanted to focus a little bit on uh, with you about the science of propagation, because I think sometimes it can be a bit mystifying when you start doing this stuff and you realize that, that little tiny piece of seed and burrito that falls off your plant has sprouted roots and is growing a new plant. And yet when you try the same thing with, say, a monster leaf, nothing happens uh, or it grows roots. But but something might grow roots, but then it won't grow anymore. So what is it that's going on in botany that, that dictates whether a plant can reproduce from a stem or a leaf or a root, how does that work?
2: Well, I'm actually excited you wanted to talk about that today because it lets me plant geek out a little bit. <laughs> I love to squeeze botany. I always feel like it's really important for people to learn some of the basics of science, even as an amateur hobbyist. If you don't understand some of the basic botany behind how a plant can multiply, you're going to have a lot of, of hits, uh, misses, or maybe some hits. But, you know, if you don't understand the totipotency, It's our botanical, uh, Uh, vocabulary word of the day or totipotentia, the Latin word of that. Basically, it's a cell's potential to differentiate into all of the different structures in organism. So if you think about a seed or a spore, those are sort of all encompassing structures, right? They have all the totipotency. They have all the potential within that seed or spore to become all of the different structures that make up that plant, right? When you grow from a seed, you're going to get the whole plant root. Shoots, leaves, roots, and flowers from that one seed, which is pretty amazing. But once that plant has developed and it has seeds and stems and roots and, and leaves, the totipotency or the potential within each of those different types of cells is very different. So essentially, what you're learning when you step into the world of plant propagation and you're trying to figure out how to propagate different plants that you love is you have to figure out for that particular plant the the potential for each different type of physiological structure, be it the root or the stem or the leaf. And it's different for all plant species. You know, based on where they're endemic, where they evolved, each plant has developed its own set of successful strategies for multiplying, right? So that's that's why I start my book, Plant Parenting, with a chapter called how plants multiply. You know, you, you want to learn the basics. So that 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 sedum leaf that falls on the 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 ground that that roots and like you said you try with other things and it doesn't work. You pull a citrus leaf and you try to root it and grow a new citrus plant and it doesn't work. That's why. Because different structures within each different plant have the totipotency or the potential to Create new adventitious roots, but maybe not an adventitious shoot, right? So your Hoya carii that everybody struggles with, it might make roots, but it might not make a shoot from the leaf. Whereas if you took a stem cutting, that stem cutting might be able to develop both adventitious roots and adventitious shoots. So it's the potential of the cells located around that plant that are going to determine if it has enough information to turn into the parts of the plant you need to grow a new plant.
1: And is there any way from looking at a particular leaf or stem or, or or root, what's going to happen with it, or is it just a case of of learning the information about different types of plants and how they can be propagated?
2: It's both. So most plants are not going to come with an instruction manual that are going to tell you which parts have the potential to become a stem or, a, or just root tissue. Uh, some plants make it obvious for you, you know, so there's going to be some experiment. For example, you have a citrus tree that's growing. It's not necessarily going to be obvious to you what part of that plant will produce both roots and a new shoot, okay? But say you're growing a tomato plant. Have you ever noticed those nodules of roots growing on the base of the stem that are growing into the air? I'm sure that you have. Mm, yeah. Those are adventitious roots. So that's a signal to you that, wow, I could just take that stem cutting right there. And that stem has the potential to develop to develop entirely new root system for me. Some plants produce offsets, little plantlets that come, roots, shoots, and all attached to, say, a flowering stem um, or the main stem or a leaf axle that uh, are very obvious to you can become an entirely new plant. Other plants, you might be very surprised to find out that, for example, begonias, um, a plant that you can take what we call split vein cuttings from, just from the leaf, uh, a, a damaged area or a cut area along the leaf vein on the leaf surface, can actually produce both roots and an entirely new bud shoot. So you can grow a whole new plant just from the surface of the leaf. But there's nothing that's necessarily going to tell you that just from looking at the plant. So it's a mixture of doing some research about the plant that you want to grow and propagate and paying attention to the physiological structures that may or may not be apparent on that plant. So it's it's a bit of both.
1: As you say, the more you know, the more you can understand and it saves you wasting time on trying to propagate things that inevitably, uh, well, not inevitably, but in some cases will not result in a, a viable plant. And what are the, obviously, I'm gung ho for propagating from seed because uh, we do this so long every spring. But I mean, obviously there's pros and cons with growing stuff from seed. What are some of the pros and cons that people need to think about when they're trying to decide whether seed is a good way to go for for houseplants?
2: You know, I always like to think about it um, in terms of what your goal is. If your goal is efficiency, then it's very possible that going from cuttings is going to be a much faster, more efficient way for you to go. For example, we'll just take tomato plants, for example, which a lot of people grow from seed. Uh, but you can also take tip cuttings from tomatoes and have a more mature plant that's going to be faster to fruit and flower uh, much quicker than if you grow from seed. However, um, you know, growing from seed uh, for certain houseplants like succulents Lithops, you know, a lot of really popular plants. Oftentimes, seed are the way to go because seed is what you can acquire. So sometimes it depends on what you can actually find for that plant as to how you're going to propagate it. Um, you know, and, and also starting seeds is just super fun for a lot of house plants. It, it's really fascinating to watch a lot of cacti and succulent germinate from seed, and you can often get uh, a lot of varieties. Uh, or species that you can't find commercially as a grown plant. So most of the time, the reason I grow things from seed is because that might be the only way I can get that particular variety, right? Or, uh, you know, or an heirloom variety or a really rare, you know, type of lithops or succulent. Seeds might be the only way that you can get it. So you may not ever be able to get your hands on a commercially available growing live plant but for getting the seed. So so that's a big reason why you might want to do that. Um, It it might also be important if the plant you have access to isn't terribly healthy, um, and you might really not want to take cuttings off of a plant like that. It might be better to to grow from seeds. So there's a bunch of different reasons why seed might be better than growing from cuttings, but then there's a lot of really great reasons why taking vegetative cuttings off of plants you already have is a very easy, fast way to get more of them more quickly if you have access to good healthy stock plants from from which it makes sense to take a cutting from right
1: here's my question which i've often wondered about when we're talking about vegetative vegetative propagation i can't sure. say that word <laughs> vegetative propagation we're talking about effectively about cloning so the in other words the genetic material that is 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 in your cutting and therefore, the new plant is going to be identical to the genetic material of the parent. Am I right there? Whereas if you're growing something from seed, it may be that that's not the case and you get interesting sports and other things being thrown up by the mix of genes that turn up in the in the seedlings grown from seed. Is that, am I right so far? Yes, a-
2: absolutely. So obviously, um, you are taking a cutting from a plant uh, that you're going to retain all exact The same genetics from. So when I take a a cutting from my, you know, peperomia or my pilea, it's going to be that exact plant. That's why we call them mother plants, the plants that we take the cuttings from. Those cuttings are going to be exactly the same. So if you want to make sure that you're getting exactly the same species or cultivar uh, of the plant that you have, then taking a vegetative, some sort of vegetative cutting if the plant will reproduce that way, is a very effective strategy, right? So if you want to make sure that, that you're keeping the same plant, yes, you're making a clone. It's going to be exactly the same genetics that the mother plant um, has. When you grow from seed... Right, you are basically growing the children of of plants that have have often cross-pollinated, um, you know, amongst uh, different plants within the same species or closely related varieties, and so you will get different characteristics. So, for example, if you have different varieties of tomatoes in your garden and they cross-pollinate, and you collect those seeds and you grow those seeds, you're going to get different tomato plants with different characteristics. So if you want to get the exact same you know variety of plant that you were growing then taking a vegetative cutting will ensure that you get a clone versus you know, something that may express a slightly different color or have a different size fruit. Um, You know, you generally don't find a lot of foliage houseplants and that sort of thing offered by seed. Occasionally you will. There are some some companies that offer really cool tropical seeds. They can take a long time to grow, but you do often get some cool variation that way that you're not going to get when you take a cutting, which you are correct, is
1: a clone. So leading on from that, I'm getting sort of, I'm thinking sure. forward here. So does that mean that say you take a cutting from a really a, a venerable Christmas cactus that your nana yes. has had and it's 45 years old and you take a cutting of that, that the genetic material in the cutting you take and the new plant, therefore, is 45 years old. And so I don't know what the lifespan of a Christmas cactus is, I suspect it's very long but does that mean that that plant's lifespan will kind of not start it doesn't go back to zero when you get that clone the the genetic material will start I'm just thinking of pothos this is what I'm actually thinking about about all those the the idea that I I seem to remember that uh, pothos is one of those plants that doesn't is only produced by vegetative propagation so therefore are these plants all kind of aging specimens i don't know right
2: so you're asking if they've got a time clock that they've accumulated not really so so that's a great way to actually to maintain and rejuvenate okay plants that you've had for a really long time an heirloom plant that you have from a family member that you know the plant over itself the original plant with a root system you know that's been growing for years and years you know you can certainly keep those alive for a very long time but as you well know as a house plant keeper, there are many organic factors that play into the survival um, or lack thereof of that plant. So eventually it's going to go, you know, eventually it's going to go. So (laughs) if you want to keep it going, taking a vegetative cutting, which is a clone, is a great way to basically restart your clock on most of those types of plants. So for example, I have a gosh, it's probably almost 40 years old now, uh, uh, dwarf Meyer lemon that was gifted to me uh, a number of years ago. So I feel very responsible for this plant. I, I can't kill it. I have to keep it going. So I take cuttings of it regularly to make sure that I have a replacement plant if I ever do the horrible thing, which is to kill this plant, which I kill a lot of plants. That, that's okay. And that is okay. You can kill a lot of plants because you can propagate more that's, that's another reason I wrote this book because so many people feel guilty for killing plants and are very scared to sort of start over or try again. And what I want to make sure everybody knows is, is that there's always a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance when you're growing plants, you can always start a new one. That's the great part of it. So no, you can basically extend the, Uh, historical lifespan, if you will, of many plants by starting a new clone and starting fresh with a new root system, new pot, new soil, all that good stuff.
1: Has has a pothos ever flowered in known history? They seem to be one of these plants that's only ever uh, propagated vegetatively. And I'm wondering if all those aged pothos, I was thinking they might be sort of on their last legs, but apparently not. Well, that's (laughs) good. That's good to hear.
2: You know, angiosperms flower. They will all flower at some point. And under certain conditions, you may not ever see that happen outside of its natural endemic environment. So the reality is, you know, trying to produce seed of many of these, you know, common tropical houseplants that we have just is not realistic. Um, right. It would be so challenging and almost near impossible for many of them. So the only way that you're going to get many plants Pothos being a great example is by vegetatively cloning it. Right. And and there are different varieties that have different characteristics and colors and leaf patterns. And so if you want, you know, uh or or philodendron, you know, if you happen to want a philodendron that has a specific variegated uh color pattern, you're going to need to get a cutting off of that exact plant if you want to have it, yes.
1: Well, I'm sure that has all set your mind racing. We'll be back for more propagation botany soon, but now it's time to hear from our second sponsor for this episode. For me, the hardest thing about learning a new language as an adult is finding the time in my week to get out to a language learning class. And that's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that gets you speaking a new language with confidence. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French and Polish, and Babbel is designed to get you speaking your new language with ease super quickly. The convenient lessons are just 10 to 15 minutes long, and you can do them anywhere. You'll learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. And the good news is you can try Babbel for free with On The Ledge Podcast. Go to babbel.com or download the app and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com or download the app to try for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. And now back to my chat with Leslie
0: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D dot com.
1: Ask about the mysteries of Adventitious roots. Let's just talk a little bit about some of these words that may not, the meaning of which may not be apparent. Adventitious roots to start with. What? What is the, and indeed Adventitious shoots. Adventitious, it sounds like something that happens around my birthday. But- <laughs> What is an adventitious root and an adventitious shoot, please?
2: Right. So, so your adventitious roots, like I was talking about a little earlier on tomato plants, these are not the roots that develop from the original seed, right? The original seed is, is going to produce the, the roots for that plant system. Adventitious roots are cells that reside elsewhere in the plant, such as along the stem, or at the base of a leaf that can produce uh, root initials. So root initials are the beginnings, right? The baby beginnings of of a root. It's not going to keep growing. It's going to wait until it comes in contact with soil or water to to continue developing. But you're going to see these little sprouts that look like roots develop along the stem or the base of the leaf. And we call those adventitious roots because they're developing in a place on the plant other than the normal Root system area from root tissue. They're developing from cells, uh, you know, petiole cells or stem cells, um, and they are creating these little root initials that give you the opportunity to snip that and, and root it uh, in water or in soil or, or one of the many methods I talk about in the book um, to create a whole new plant. So they're adventitious, meaning that, that they don't normally happen there. But they've, they've happened as a result of certain environmental conditions, and those cells are able to produce those. So um, they are adventitious, and they're adventitious to you as a propagator to be able to take advantage. You know, mm-hmm. same goes for shoots, adventitious shoots. So when you leaf, um, when, when you take a leaf cutting, a whole leaf cutting, you know, from an from a echeveria, you know, plant, uh, which is able to produce both adventitious roots and an adventitious shoot – from the base of that leaf tissue, you'll see the little root initials start first, and then you'll get a little bud shoot. Right? It's called an adventitious shoot because that is not normally where the stem shoot tissue is going to arise on that plant. So it's it's extra, it's bonus, basically. I love a bonus. <laughs> Brilliant.
1: Well, that that clears that one up. And another thing we we sometimes see on plant labels here in Europe. I don't know if the terminology is the same elsewhere in the world but sometimes you see a plant label and it'll say PBR or Plant Breeders Rights and it'll have some information about propagation and and warning you to be sort of uh, avoid propagating this plant and I wonder if you can just give us a little bit of comfort or advice on whether these plants are things that we are not even allowed to put a little cutting in water, or if this if there's something slightly less draconian going on here?
2: Sure, you'll you'll see things like that in Europe or here. PPAF, so there's patent pending notifications if something doesn't yet have a registered, you know, trademark or a, a patent. So. Patented plants, um, just like many other forms of intellectual property, right? If you are a photographer and you take photographs, you have the copyright to that image. Someone can't take it and sell it for profit, right, um, without working out a deal with you. The same goes for plants, and a lot of people don't realize that that um, cultivated bred plant Cultivars, you know, that are a result of a breeder intentionally making a cross or a selection, and then doing the work to bring that plant to market, you know, under a specific cultivar name or a a, a, a patented trade name. That's their intellectual property, and you don't have the legal right to propagate and sell that plant without a license and paying a fee to that breeder. This is big news to a lot of people outside the plant world. As a professional horticulturist, I work in this every day. But the rules that apply to such patented plant material are generally in reference to commercial production uh, so or even giving them away. So, for example, if you buy a Patented plant. It's got that little mark on the label, like you stated, or PPAF. It's got a patent with it. What that means is that you, as the person who has purchased the plant, you may propagate it for yourself in your garden and in your home. Uh, But you may not resell it, okay? You may not sell it in your driveway yard sale. You may not sell it at your school fundraiser. You may not do anything like that with it. You are only allowed to propagate it for yourself. So if you buy a plant like that and you get seeds or it, it produces runners, say it's a, a, a patented, you know, strawberry variety or, you know, airplane plant, whatever, that produces runners. You know, it's it's propagating all the time for you. So how could you not take these cuttings and root them, right? You're, of course, allowed to do that for yourself. But when you start passing them out and you start selling them, that's when you're essentially breaking the rules.
1: That is good to know, because these plants do pop up quite often in garden centres and, and draw us in with their beautiful looks and then uh, cause us confusion. But that that's quite clear. And as you say, it's it if people put, are putting a lot of work into breeding a plant, then... There is an argument to say, well, yes, their work should be in some way protected, so that does make sense. One thing that one thing that I wanted to ask you about, another one of these long words that I'm not quite sure how to pronounce, which I, I've seen coming up a few times um, in Facebook groups for houseplants, is indole acid or IBA. <laughs>
2: you did, and it. people
1: and people is that is that right? If I pronounce, yes. people yes. sort of saying try using some (laughs) IBA. And I'm thinking... I thought that was some kind of beer, but no. Ah,
2: it does sound like that, doesn't it? <laughs>
1: rooting hormone. Now, uh, back in the day when I was a, a young whippersnapper in the world of houseplants, rooting hormone came in a weird container that had like a spiky top on it, like a spiked top, and it was powder. And you put your rooting cutting into it, and then you um, you, you you went on with your taking your cutting. Uh, but things seem to have moved on a bit since then. And I have to say, many years ago, I gave up using that stuff, because i just came to the conclusion that things uh, didn't re- didn't seem to make that much difference perhaps i was wrong but now there seems to be a whole new generation of rooting hormone products out there do we need to use these are they are they beneficial are they worth the money and and what is indole buty- butyric acid in the first place
2: well, good. You, you did good. You said it correctly. So Hurrah. we'll just call it IBA.
1: Good. <laughs> um, it's
2: a hormone. It's, it's a hormone that is naturally occurring in plants in, that stimulates root tissue. The new growth of, of root initials or those adventitious roots that you see and roots within the main root system. So it's a, it's a hormone. When you are taking cuttings, essentially the game is you are in a race to root before you rot, right? That's always oh, I love the that. trick.
1: Yeah. Root root before it. you rot, I'm going to use that.
2: Go ahead. That's always that's <laughs> what I do. It's, it's the race. And, and, and just sort of having that as a perspective, I think helps a lot of beginning propagators because it often doesn't even occur that. That oh that this is going to rot if, if it doesn't produce a root within a certain amount of time then obviously the plant really can't sustain itself and so you're all and, and, and the same goes for seeds too essentially uh, you know you have to get them to germinate before they rot because eventually that's going to happen so it's really a race to see if you can get that rooting um, that that rooting activity to happen fast enough so that that plant can take off and thrive so what rooting hormones such as IBA um, or Gibberellic acid, so GA. You'll see that also included in in a lot of natural root stimulators. Essentially, provides an extra boost of that hormone to that cutting to trigger it to produce roots faster than it normally would, or more densely. So, if you are struggling with cuttings, or you're taking sort of semi woody cuttings, cuttings that take longer to root, so there's a bigger potential for rotting before they root may um, uh tropical houseplants that have slightly woodier stems can be challenging for a lot of people to root because they take a lot longer to root. So there's a, a more time to make a mistake with that cutting before it can actually root. So using rooting powders, they also come in really nice gel forms now. So I do a lot of cuttings in my automatic propagators. I have these aeroponic propagators that sit on counters because I am – As most professional horticulturists are incredibly dismissive of all of my plants. It's survival of the fittest, right? So I'm a forgetful, terrible waterer. If, if you can't survive on your own, there's a chance that you may not make it at my house, right? <laughs> because I'm busy helping everybody else. So I, I don't have a lot of time for my own thing. So I use autom- automated uh, propagators to take a lot of cut- cuttings, especially cuttings that take longer to root because it keeps them properly moist for long periods of time. The gels that you can use are really handy for that uh, because the powders aren't going to stick to the cutting. But it, it can help help you root things more quickly if you've struggled with it. Now, if you're doing water rooting, you know, where you're taking cuttings and you're putting them, it's the type of plant that will successfully water root, and you can put it in water and let it root, then then there's no point in using the rooting hormones, really. But if you are doing another form of cutting, say, into some other type of inert media, core some you know preformed plugs or potting soil or out in the garden even directly into pots, then rooting hormones can help you speed up that rooting process um, before that cutting rots. And there are now more organic options if you don't like using some of the synthetically produced rooting hormones. So they can be beneficial depending on what you're doing.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad that we've got all of that cleared up. And um, I, I guess personally, I, as I say, I'm a bit of the school of hard knocks like you. And I just kind of think, well, the cutting works or it doesn't work. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, on
2: my really important, um, you know, on more woody cuttings or citrus, roses, woodier uh, woodier tropical houseplants, you know, things that have tougher stems that take longer to form a callus before they can create those adventitious roots, many cuttings. Um, you know, have to close up and form a callus. You'll see that a lot in succulents. You know, when you see the recommendations to let your succulents sit out and cure and dry, they need to form a callus over that exposed cut, whether it be on a stem or a leaf. And then from that callus often is where you will be able to stimulate roots. But that can take some time. So for things like citrus plants, I often go ahead and use a rooting hormone because, It can take so long for them to produce roots sometimes that, you know, I'll lose half my cuttings before they root. The rooting hormone helps speed up that process and I I get more successful cuttings.
1: Right. And that is the the aim of the game, really, is to just get as many plants as possible out of uh, what you're doing, because, hey, we all we all need more plants (laughs) or perhaps we don't, but our friends do. (laughs)
2: We all need more plants. And then everybody else needs more plants, too. So, you know, I think that, you know, propagation is not only a great way to just have a lot of very simple, low-cost, lifelong joy, if you will. Um, Propagating is just so fun. And I think that it's, it's so rewarding. And it's, I think, a great way for people to have community and share and give gifts. You know, you were talking about grandma's... You know, Christmas cactus. Those plants are very important to people and, and it's a great way to sort of carry on tradition, learning to be able to propagate things yourself. And it can be a real sustainable way as well to feed your gardening habit, right? So I think that there are a lot of a lot of great things that factor into doing your own propagation. Not that it stops anybody from buying plants. I buy just as many plants. <laughs> I mean So you know, true. It isn't going to stop that, but it certainly can help you stretch your gardening budget and your indoor uh, plant keeping budget significantly, um, as well as, um, yes, be able to share your love of plants with all your friends and family.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Leslie Halleck. I'm going to go away and uh, propagate some more plants immediately. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Thanks so much to Leslie for joining me and I hope that has helped you to get a little bit deeper into the world of plant propagation. Details of Leslie's new book, Plant Parenting, and all the other stuff that she gets up to is detailed in my show notes at janeperrone.com. And if you're a Patreon subscriber of $5 a month or more, then go and listen to An Extra Leaf, number 28, in which I talk to Leslie about air layering, what it's useful for and how to do it. And then I give it a go on my husband's spindly dracaena plant. I know, I know, it's risky. And now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Julie via Twitter. Julie sent me a DM on Twitter to at Jane Perrone, and she says that she recently spent too much money on a large calla lily, perfectly erect and gorgeous in the garden centre. And as soon as it got home, it started to droop. She's had to remove several stems and didn't water it until it was home for a few days. She sent me a picture of this calla lily, and it's one of the pink flowered ones and it, it does look like uh, it's a bit tired and emotional. <laughs> so what can she do about this calla lily? Okay, the first thing to say is to clear up any confusion about what this plant is. So calla lilies usually refers to the genus Zantedeschia, and this is where the confusion starts, because some of the members of this genus are hardy so things like xanthodesia ethiopica that's a hardy airum lily which can grow all year round outside. It's usually grown as a bog plant or, or marginal water plant because it does like an awful lot of moisture. But then we come to the tender types of Xantodeskias and these are usually referred to as calla lilies. And these are usually some kind of hybrid between a couple of different species of Zantedeschia. So, and they, because they're very popular as pot plants, they have been bred and bred and bred by breeders. So, Test, identifying exactly what the parentage of your calla lily is, is usually quite difficult. But as long as you know that it's one of the tender types, then you'll know how to look after it. So I think this is one of the tender types. Um, it can be used as, as, you know, in the summer outdoors as bedding, but it would need to be uh, taken inside over the winter time to stay frost free. So these plants, as I say, all the Xantodeskias are boggy plants, they like a lot of moisture. So unlike a lot of house plants, you really need to keep that moisture around the plant's roots. So you know Dr. Hesseon uh my all-time favourite houseplant expert, he suggests watering this one daily when it's in flower inside. So um, to keep that soil moist, but don't let it get waterlogged either. So it could go in a tray of water every couple of days or so, um, and, but allow it to drain off. Don't have it sitting in water indoors. Um, and it needs an awful lot of light too. It will take some direct sunlight, um, but not all day necessarily. So maybe a west-facing window, if possible, something like like that would be ideal, or in a conservatory, provided it doesn't get absolutely blasting hot. And I think that's probably why Julie's plant has wilted a bit because it's got a bit too dry. It will revive fairly quickly once given some water. But if you keep letting it dry out like that, it's stressing the plant and eventually the plant will fail. Now you could keep this plant going all year round indoors, but if you want to, you can tail off the watering towards the autumn and the foliage will turn yellow and die back. And then the rhizome, the storage organ under the surface of the soil will just sit there until spring and then you start watering again and it will revive itself. So that's kind of convenient if you want a plant that kind of isn't hanging around looking miserable over the winter time, because you can store the rhizome in its pot somewhere out of the way, and wait for it to start into growth again. Uh, you just got to remember, obviously, to start watering it again. <laughs> Put a note in your diary. So I hope that's helped, Julie. And show me pictures of your zantedeschias. I know they come in an amazing rainbow of colours these days. So if you've got a really impressive zantedeschia or calla lily, uh, Tweet me a photo at Jane Perone, And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, then drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to do a and a special in the not too distant future, so get your questions in now. That is just about it for this week's show. I'll be back in a week for my penultimate episode before the 100th episode. I know. I can't wait either, but we're all going to have to wait. So I will speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. The ad music in this episode was by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, Dill Pickles and Whistling Rufus. And you also heard Josh Woodward's Overthrown. All these tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperrone.com for details.